Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about the GOP through modern history to understand how they came to be what they are and how the impeachment is throwing this somewhat new reality into such sharp relief. And before I get started, just to explain a little bit, you know, if you've been listening, I've been doing a series on impeachment, different aspects of it. So we did the history of Ukraine to explain how that ties in. We did the history of the concept of impeachment itself to understand how it's supposed to work, its intentions, and so forth. And then my plan for today, which was going to be the third and final installment in the series, not to mention the last episode of the year before we go on break, was just to be the case against Donald Trump, bring, you know, tie it all together. And now here, here's where we are today with the case facing us today. But what I realize is that, that there's a more interesting and maybe more important story to be told because well-informed people on both sides of the political divide are probably going to have heard most aspects of the case against Trump. And they either see it clearly and believe his guilt and all of that, or they insist that nothing is as it seems and it's all a hoax or this is all being made up by Democrats who just hate Trump or, you know, whatever. And so that divide creates a scenario in which me doing an episode on the case against Trump turns out to be kind of useless because many of you will have already heard those details and you won't learn that much. You know, maybe a few, you know, a few extra uh, tidbits may come through that you hadn't heard before. And then others, because there are conservative listeners who listen to the show, maybe will have heard a lot of those arguments too and either, you know, dismissed them or argued that they're made up or, or, or whatever. And so making the case against Trump just continues the stalemate. And so what I've decided to do instead is to explore why that truth is the case. I I think we could all agree that no minds are being changed through this process, or at least very few. And so, so what's more important to understand is why that is the case. Why is it that no minds are being changed? And so that's what today's episode seeks to explore. And To learn why that is the case, frankly, you have to just look at the history, the the relatively modern history over just the past few decades of the Republican Party to understand how we got to this place where we are. And now onto the show. Clips today come from Impeachment Explained, which is doing most of the heavy lifting for today's episode, but also featuring on the media, Impeachment Today, and some reporting from the Washington Post. A big picture reality here is that an out-of-control executive, an executive who is abusing power or betraying the public interest or acting in a way that is unacceptable, is not something that the founding fathers, that the American system of government failed to account for. In fact, they were very concerned with the possibility of monarchs. They were operating within a context in which executive overreach was not just possible, but it was the norm. The great question of the American experiment was could you construct a system that would not be run for the benefit and according to the whims of one man? What the founding fathers, what the Constitution did not account for was Mitch McConnell, was Matt Gates, was Kevin McCarthy, was political parties. 
We were supposed to have the ambition of different branches of government checking the ambition of others. Congress was supposed to be the unit of action against the president, which was another unit of government. Instead, what we have are parties that cooperate across branches. It is the fundamental change in our constitutional system and one the Constitution has almost nothing to say about. My point here is simply this. We know how to handle a problem like Donald Trump. What we don't quite know is how to handle a problem like Donald Trump's protectors. What we don't quite know is how to handle the problem of what if he did everything we're worried that he did, but because we have political parties now, there's nothing that can be done about it within the constitutional system. The American constitutional system has a way for handling a president like Donald Trump. That way is impeachment. It is written down in the Constitution. What it does not have is a way for handling a situation in which one party will protect a president from accountability or impeachment under any circumstances because their political fortunes, their professional fortunes, their personal fortunes are bound up in his success. And that's something that should be more concerning. It is a genius of our system that the way impeachment is designed, you do not lose the political party you had. It is not the case that if Donald Trump were to be impeached, Nancy Pelosi would become president. The Democrats would take over. It is a case that Mike Pence would become president. That is supposed to, on some level, allow for a continuation of factional prerogatives. It should, on some level, allow a political party to hold their own president accountable. The fact that it is not is a grand question of why our system does not appear to work better, even given rules that seem, given what they did not expect, quite farsighted. Which is all to say that the most interesting actor in this drama is not Donald Trump. He is predicted. It's Mitch McConnell. Because Mitch McConnell is what was not predicted. Mitch McConnell and his willingness to quietly, consistently, ruthlessly protect Trump at all costs. That's a real different question. When he said, as he did a week or two ago, you all know how the Constitution works. The way impeachment stops is with me as majority leader. That is not how the Constitution works. That is how the Constitution breaks. When he says that, what he's saying is that there is a loophole. There is something that was not predicted here. And that is that we would not have ambition checking ambition. What we would have is ambition protecting ambition. I think the story of the impeachment hearings is much more about what the Republican Party will accept than what Donald Trump did. We know what Donald Trump did. There's actually not much dispute over it. But the Republican Party's behavior in this seems to be the key question. So what have you seen watching them? I've seen exactly what I've seen for the last decade or more. Many people believe Trump disrupted our entire political system. And I don't underestimate his level of unfitness for office, but Donald Trump was able to get elected and more importantly, continue in office as a consequence of a Republican Party that uh, has become extreme and tribal and just absolutely captured by the broader changed ecology of uh, the GOP. 
Let's dig in on that a little bit. I think when people heard the argument about asymmetric polarization, which you and Norm Ornstein, I think, really pushed into the into the mainstream, people understand that as an ideological question, that they, they think of that as the Republican Party moving right and the Democratic moving left on policy issues. But I think what we're seeing is on another axis, actually, around what kind of behavior is acceptable, what approach to liberalism and illiberalism is acceptable. So what is the story behind that kind of asymmetric polarization, separate from the question of what tax cuts you do and don't support? Yes, it's so important to move beyond the ideological extreme behavior and and positions on issues and the rest. Uh, Going back to it's even worse than it looks, we mentioned that, but the takeaway line is the Republican Party is scornful of compromise, unpersuaded by conventional understanding of facts, evidence, and science, and dismissive of the legitimacy of its political opposition. So it's getting at exactly what you're talking about. It's the system behavior. It's the, if you will, constitutional hardball. It's it's all of that behavior that would be problematic, whatever the ideological position the Republican Party happened to settle on. So give me the explanation for Devin Nunez. What is happening there when he gives these long windups full of conspiracy theories. The role he's playing in this is distinct and it's very important. And how do you understand the incentives that either produce Devin Nunez or currently shape his behavior? He's the prime example of the behavior of uh, Republicans in situations like this, uh, Earlier in the Trump administration, remember, he was uh, had to step aside from the chairmanship of the House Intelligence Committee because of charges of leaking uh, certain confidential information to people in the White House and employees of the president, private employees. Uh, So he's been in this all the way. It really goes back with deep roots in American history, but it was the Beginning of the breakdown of Jim Crow in the in the 40s and 50s and culminating in many respects in the 1960s that began to profoundly change the coalitional bases of uh, of the parties. You, you know, the Democrats were deeply divided on race because of the Southerners and Republicans were divided as well. But there were a, at least a substantial minority, if not majority, uh, of Republicans who were Lincoln Republicans, who were racial moderates and favored the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. So coming out of that and then the decision of uh, Richard Nixon to follow advice on a Southern strategy uh, really produced the, the kind of elite partisan activist uh, phase of this, that was the beginning of the change in the coalitional base. And over time, minorities uh, sorted themselves into uh, the Democratic Party and those who felt aggrieved and shortchanged by all of this. uh, Some racist, some not, found themselves in the Republican Party. But that was only part of what was going on. Then then it was the Christian right that saw an opportunity, uh, Paul Weyrich, uh, to make more headway in the Republican Party. Then it was Grover Norquist. And this was 
I think an absolute key part of this uh, was uh, the no new tax pledge for the Republican Party and Ronald Reagan and government is the problem. It sort of underscored the economic, corporate, plutocratic uh coalitional partner of the Republican Party and made it more prominent. So all of these sort of conspired to produce um, much more like-minded Republicans and Democrats separately, and the polarization took hold. And over time, they became more competitive and elections for the House and Senate meant something because it was control of the party and the like. But as part of that effort, and it took decades to evolve, um, I've mentioned some pieces of it. Uh, two things happened. One, New Gingrich happened, and, and he introduced a norm of uh, really demonizing uh, the Congress and its uh, leadership as, as corrupt and untrustworthy, and it was a war. And this was really weaponize the governing process in in our elections. It was all about winning the majority. And, you know, we'll talk about the rest at other times. It was incidental, but it was it was hateful. And those are the bad guys and we're the good guys. And it sort of introduced something into our politics. And then the the ecology of the party changed and there was organizations that uh, developed the, the Coke network and the array of groups operating with the party, but outside of it. And of course, the conservative media, radio, television and cable and social media and all, all of this came together. And some of that because of the the racial issue there and the interest of the economic cutting taxes and protecting corporations and uh, and the like, it came together in a party where loyalty meant everything, where identity of party was a summary identity for a whole set of cleavages in society that suddenly became aligned with party instead of being cross-cutting cleavages as the framers developed. So it it was cult-like. There was connections with uh, more extreme right-wing groups and individuals. Some of them got hearings. And Devin Nunes sort of came out of that world, grew up in it in Congress. And he believed virtually every conspiracy theory about the Democrats. But, but, uh, I mean, But let me hold on that yeah. for a minute, because... Like I want to, I, I had to do a lot of work on asymmetric polarization and thinking about your enormous work for for the book I'm writing, why we're polarized, or I guess that I have written, coming out in January. Pre-order wherever you get your books. <laughs> but part of the story you just told is a good story for sorting, right? It is a story of why the parties, which were mixed in the mid 20th century with conservative Dixiecrats and the Democratic Party and liberal Lincoln Republicans in the Republican Party. Why they sorted, right? right? And and they have sorted. It doesn't really explain why somebody like Newt Gingrich or later Devin Nunez took root in the Republican Party, why that was fallow ground for conspiracy theories, for kind of tactical escalation that doesn't quite have its match on the Democratic side. And this, to me, is the, the, the key question of asymmetric polarization. 
it isn't like why did the parties get further away from each other or even why did they develop the coalitions they did? You can imagine the same connections between corporations and the Republican Party and unions in the Democratic Party and so on with very different standards of behavior. But something happened on the Republican Party to what you read a couple minutes ago that it did become scornful of compromise. It did become more willing to cocoon itself in a very strange world of conspiracy theories and partisan theorizing and that led it to embrace somebody like Donald Trump. So why that part? Well, see, I think the coalitional change is a big part of the difference. Uh, that is, if all the white supremacists are uh, are gathered in one party and not across both parties, then it begins to attract individuals. Uh, so race is, is a clear part of it. But the other part is, as uh, Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson have written about, is plutocracy. That is, conservative parties across the, the Western democracies uh, have for over a century had a dilemma. They inherently supported the business interests and people with resources who kind of ran the shop until uh, the franchise was extended. And suddenly they had to get elected under situations where the plutocrats can provide some of the money, but they don't have the vote. So they have to think about how do they, how do they build it? And the Republican party in this contemporary era made a sort of key decision that the best route to maintaining a majority in the face of unfavorable demographic uh, projections and the and the rest was uh, basically to make a different kind of appeal and the appeal was a populist appeal of resentment and outrage against the establishment and that meant government and the people who controlled it. That was a decision that was made. That was an opportunity. That's the decision that was made in Germany in, uh, in the early part of the 20th century. The, the Tories in Britain made a different direction. They sort of accepted the fact that government would begin to sort of provide benefits to people and they would maintain the democratic system. But this was really very different. So I, I see it in that way as the, as the co, the, the efforts to build a coalition was to make fearful whites who saw themselves not doing so well economically and being hurt by people who were on the dole, uh, by religious traditionalists who were fearful of, uh, their religion being demonized and taken away. And it came to be something else. The Democrats believe in government. They think it can solve problems. Mind you, they make their deals with uh, people with substantial resources, but that's, that's there as one part of it. Their effort was to appeal to the economic interest. And over time, uh, the racial minorities' interest and a whole host of other liberal agenda items, but none of them necessitated, it seems to me, an embrace of an extreme part of the political spectrum. Throughout our history, we've had a radical right and a radical left. They've been around, but they've usually been marginalized. Uh, they came a little close uh, 
for a while with Goldwater. We we saw them with Pat Buchanan and we saw them with George Wallace. So they're out there and they sometimes come close, but they never came came this close to uh, actually controlling one of the major parties and and being a majority party in uh, in Congress. The Madisonian system, uh, its genius, as it's been described over history, is that it fractures power in a number of different ways. It fractures it across the federalist structure, right? You have a lot of power given to the states, but also across the separation of powers at the federal level. And ambition was meant to check ambition. And the way we would take care of a wayward president is that Congress would have its own institutional incentives and would want to conduct that oversight and would want to rein in or kick out an executive who had abused the powers of his office. Now, ambition cooperates with ambition as the parties cooperate across the different uh, across the different branches of government. So how is having a Republican Party like this changed our political structure? Is it something our political structure even has an answer for? Not a very effective one at this time. As I look forward, if Trump is removed from office or defeated in the next election, we remain uh with this problem, uh, with a, if you will, anti-system radical in the procedural process terms, as it's hard for me to see how that can work in our system. It's made so vivid by the Republican questioning, uh, during the, the impeachment hearings. It's just, it's stunning to see, uh, the worldview and the importance of holding holding to it. I mean, it's often stated that the word political party does not appear in the Constitution. The framers uh, worried about interest and talked a lot about them in the in the Federalist Papers, but they at least didn't uh, think it was wise to to include political parties. Remember, this was before the era of mass political participation. Um, and so they were fearful and they thought their system of creating these institutional checks and balances, as you've summarized uh, very well, and then creating incentives that would lead the occupants of those institutions uh, to create the checks in the face of somehow a demagogue or an autocrat uh, or someone who was really unfit and doing severe damage to our constitutional uh, system, we'd be able to take care of that. But if the party of the president is bound uh, to the individual and their institutional responsibilities play second fiddle, then then the institutions don't work. And, and remember, it, it's, it's happening in the federal system uh, throughout. And so my view is we now have an incredible mismatch between our constitutional system and, and the nature of the parties. That, that's the argument we made way back, and it's even worse than it, than it looks. And part of it is just the polarized parties, but a big part of it is the is the nature of the Republican Party. I mean, if we had a sort of European-style, center-right, conservative party, we'd get through this uh, because they would still have the capacity as maybe not a majority, but as in the Nixon years, uh, it was still the capacity of, of individuals to have really quite distinctive views and not be living in constrained 
to act in a certain way. Even, I'm sorry to say, Congressman Will Hurd of Texas, he's, he's the one moderate on the committee, and he hasn't shown his hand completely, but I haven't heard him give evidence of any discomfort with the way in which the Republicans are uh, handling this system. So I think we have a huge mismatch, and our system cannot work under these circumstances. It just cannot work. So we either need to replace the Republican Party or we need to change the system. Now, constitutional amendments are very tough, but it, it may be there are things that can be done legislatively and only if Democrats are in power. Um, one of them is, is to have multi-member districts and create the electoral basis for a more multi-party system in which coalitions can be built afterward. It's very difficult. But what I'm suggesting to you is so many of the mechanisms that the framers created, the electoral college, the basis of membership uh, in the Senate, single-member districts that makes political geography play a tremendously important role. All of that in this environment during these times has created a non-majoritarian system. Uh, we call it minority rule. And that means that on a whole lot of central points, uh, a Republican Party and government can engage in behavior that's unpopular with the broader electorate, but they'll do it anyways because of the incentives they feel to proceed with a program and behavior in office that will uh, that will keep the loyalty of their donors and their voters. odd thing about this entire affair is that we've known the truth about the president in the Ukraine almost from the very beginning. I mean, he said on the White House lawn to reporters that he did it. That's David Roberts, who covers energy and politics for Vox, who set out to answer the eternal question, how can the president's defenders on Capitol Hill and on Fox News and such like media keep denying the obvious, keep repeating narratives and timelines and outright BS that is continually, definitively debunked? An NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll published earlier this week found that two-thirds of Americans say nothing they hear in the impeachment inquiry would cause them to change their minds about whether Trump ought to be impeached. David Roberts calls this a pivotal moment in our epistemic crisis, meaning the crisis in how we acquire knowledge? Right. The crisis in how we come to know things, how we learn things, what we count as true, who we trust. And by the crisis, I just mean we're sort of splitting into two worlds, not just two different sets of values or priorities or sort of visions for the country, but two different fact sets. And you get people dug in to where they're saying things to pollsters like, look, I picked my side. I don't care what anyone says anymore. The Democrats have the field, they have the talent, they have the facts, they have the format, but you argue that 
it is very much in doubt that they could win. By any sort of objective standard, if there were a referee, the referee would have stepped in and said, this is over. You guys have established your case. But it is the lack of referees that is precisely the problem. You would have to have a referee whose word is respected by both sides of the contest. And that's what we don't have anymore. So one side's referees can say, hey, we think it's over and obvious. And the other side's referees can just say, no, we refuse to acknowledge it. And in that circumstance, there's just no way to finish the game. So you argued in a piece last weekend on Vox that this moment is defined by tribal epistemology and that it's kind of like (laughs) tribal morality. Right. So it's tribal morality, I think, is is something people are more familiar with. It's when you decide the welfare of my tribe, my group, takes precedence over principles. So, for instance, in the mid-2000s, we had a big national debate about torture. And the sort of two sides, one was saying, no, don't torture is a principle. It applies to everyone, right? Us and them. But the other side was saying, look, no, we're good people. We're on the side of right. So if we torture... It's okay, because our tribe is good, so what we do is good. And tribal epistemology is just the same thing. You put your tribal interests ahead of sort of epistemological principles of evidence and self-correction and self-criticism and peer review, all these sort of mechanisms we have for determining truth. You just put your tribe's interests ahead of those. So you end up saying, we're going to believe whatever is useful for us in the moment to believe. I was thinking about the ejection by the president of members of the tribe for betrayal and, as you might put it, epistemic transgressions. Yes. For example, we have a tape of Representative Jim Himes questioning Jennifer Williams on Tuesday. She worked for Pence. She also worked for Obama and the Bush administration before that and for the Bush-Cheney re-election campaign. Ms. Williams, on Sunday, the president personally targeted you in a tweet. It reads, tell Jennifer Williams, whoever that is, to read both transcripts of the presidential calls and see the just-released statement from Ukraine. Then she should meet with the other never-Trumpers, who I don't know and mostly never even heard of, and work out a better presidential attack. Two things are notable about that. As you say, the entire weight of her experience and previous commitments when she crossed the tribe... It was tissue paper. It meant nothing. And secondly, Trump has sort of like exacerbated all this in the sense that his behavior is so erratic and his sort of assertions are sort of changing day by day. So there's no way to even kind of pretend anymore that you're basing your defense of him on principles. He makes that impossible. So if you want to be a member of the tribe in good standing, you have to go along with all of Trump's veering back and forth. The fact that Mike Pence did nothing to step up and Mm. defend her shows that he knows the game. Like, well, if this is the way Trump veered today, oh, well, I'm following him come what may. People generally are too busy to pay close attention to politics. They pay attention to fragments and they use shorthand. And I wanted you to talk about those heuristics. I think it's perfectly normal, and it's not in any way derogatory to say that most people just sort of see headlines here and there, watch the nightly news occasionally, the scroll past it on Facebook. And so they have to use heuristics, mm-hmm. shortcuts. 
And one heuristic that's very strong in all people, I think, is this sense that if something is valid, if it makes sense, it will command at least some agreement from both sides of a controversy, right? If you can get consensus, it's a signal of legitimacy. To take an example, if we see a Republican come forward and say something's wrong with this behavior that Trump did, we sort of granted a little bit more weight. But the problem is what Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, figured out when Obama was elected, it's fully in my power to just give him consensus and agreement across party lines on nothing. The voting public won't understand the mechanisms of Washington well enough to know that it's me doing it. They just look up and see the president and they say, gosh, everything Obama does just causes a big fight. So if the public is just grumpy and disgusted and tuned out because the whole thing seems like a ridiculous squabble that never ends, that is absolutely to the Republicans' benefit. Our base will fight alongside us every step of the way, and the sort of unengaged middle is going to see this mess and just tune out. So when we talk about Trump's base, we're talking about under a quarter of registered voters. But what's going on in the Hill now isn't about them. They're already on board. This is about that 30 percent, according to the NPR PBS Maris poll, that says their minds are still open to information coming to light in the hearings. So what do the president's defenders need this 30 percent of us to do or not do? As I said, the way to make people dismiss something is just to make it look partisan, which is why they keep attacking the process itself. And what they want is for that 30% to look at this spectacle and say, oh, it's just more of this. I don't care. I'm going to tune out. That's what they want and need is for nothing to break through to that fuzzy middle. I also think that there's this effort to make these proceedings incomprehensible. Yes, well, it's just the starkest dichotomy as you're watching now of these sort of somber Democrats asking factual questions and then Nunes coming in with these sort of random conspiracy theories that if you aren't closely following Fox in the kind of right-wing bubble, you wouldn't even recognize what he's referring to. Like Democrats on this very committee negotiated with people who they thought were Ukrainians in order to obtain nude pictures of Trump. Believe me, you don't need to know, but my point is like there's this whole menagerie of conspiracy theories that you won't even know what they are unless you're in that bubble. And those are the people that Republicans are speaking to. So if you're just a member of the general public, they're literally not going to make sense to you. We saw a perfect example of this on Tuesday when Nunes said this. Well, Ambassador and Mr. Morrison, I have some bad news for you. TV ratings are way down. Way down. I don't don't hold it personally. I don't think it's you guys. But whatever drug deal the Democrats are cooking up here on the dais, American people aren't buying it. What's amazing about that to me is it shows that Trump's mentality is infusing the party now. To someone like me or you who cares what are the facts of the case, whether or not it's getting good ratings seems very obviously irrelevant. But if there is no such thing as truth, if there's only one side's truth and the other side's truth, then the performance of the argument is the only thing. And so 
to Nunes, the fact that the Democrats' performance isn't drawing ratings is entirely relevant. In his mind, there is nothing but competing performances going on here. You wrote that Democrats are attempting to do something that arguably nothing since the 9-11 attacks has done. Unite Americans in a clear understanding of a threat and a clear will to action. And you wrote that at this point it seems entirely possible that it won't happen. So what then? Well, (laughs) I want to predict that it's going to fall apart because you can't operate a movement in a country based on fantasies. But on the flip side, I kind of thought that a long time ago and sort of defied gravity sort of the other way, you know, the other way things can go is if this sort of cultish, increasingly authoritarian movement takes over the country in Russia and Turkey and Poland, right? It's it's a disturbingly longer and longer list. We see countries that we thought were democracies devolve into this. In the U.S., so much has happened in the last few years that we thought would never happen. I think we should really loosen up our imaginations as to what can happen when a movement that is convinced that everything it knows and loves is in danger of falling apart, a movement that's thinking like that, unconnected anymore to facts or reality, and got its hands on the power of the federal government, is the basic recipe for democracies falling apart. One of the things that is tricky in this conversation, but I think is actually important, is distinguishing the idea from news reportage that happens in a very professional way, but happens to be done from a somewhat more conservative perspective, from conservative media entertainment. And oftentimes, I will hear people make the argument that the mainstream media has some amount of liberal bias, which I think is is true, actually, certainly on social issues. I think if you look in big city newsrooms and most of these uh, newspapers or media organizations are in New York or they're in L.A. or they're in D.C., you know, people are overwhelmingly pro-choice. They're pro-immigrant. Um, they're not necessarily pro-single-payer health care, but they're, but they're culturally liberal. <laughs> but they do a pretty good job on the news. And that actually, as I see it, did not leave that much room for just conservative news because people just weren't that underserved. What it created a lot of room for was conservative media. And somebody like Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson or some of these other players, uh, Laura Ingram, they're not trying to report the news in the same way. What they're trying to create is a conservative narrative and storyline. And what's striking uh, about that is that the person who is the best customer is Donald Trump, that he is not just creating like a state propaganda network. He is the person who believes in it and it shapes his actions. And that's a very different situation than just having a conservative news dimension to your media. I think that's right. And I think that is a a pretty important distinction. And I think that you're also right in zeroing in on the question of audience or appetite, right? Because if you're tuning into something because it's conservative, what you're looking for is most likely not just a set of 
reported facts about the world, if you're ideologically motivated to seek out that news source, you're probably looking for something that has a little bit more of an argument, um, that's a little bit more opinionated. And there have been efforts um, over the past 30 to 40 years to create sort of conservative journalism but it hasn't really had the same power as conservative opinion. That has really been kind of the heart of conservative media over the past 40 years. When it comes to Donald Trump, one of the most interesting things about his presidency is not that Fox News is operating as state television, but rather that whatever they put on air Donald Trump tends to believe. And so that actually has real consequences. And it actually has real consequences for something like the impeachment inquiry. It does seem, and it's hard to parse anyone's actual beliefs and their heart, but it does seem like Donald Trump genuinely believed that there was this democratic conspiracy in 2016 that somehow involved Ukraine and involved the server and involved all of these other moving pieces that he just needed to expose. And the moment that he exposed it, then everyone would be on his side. And you can tell that there was this belief by the actions of the administration, by people heading all over the the, the world and this, this sort of Carmen San Diego, let's go to Italy, let's go to Ukraine to find this server and to hunt down this conspiracy. It was something that Donald Trump really believed. And this is the flip side of having a state media that tells you everything that you want to hear and will repeat any sort of conspiracy theory. If you believe those conspiracies, you get led down a rabbit hole pretty quickly. And I think that's part of what happened with Ukraine. Yeah, this to me is such an important point about this, because I think the the conventional wisdom about Fox News and Breitbart and the rest of the, this ecosystem is that it is protecting Trump from impeachment. But as you say, the evidence is also that it lured Trump down the path that led to this impeachment process, that a lot of these conspiracy theories, they originated with people like Peter Schweizer, who is an editor-at-large for Breitbart, John Solomon, who is a conservative columnist for The Hill. They were promoted in tons of different Fox News and Breitbart and related uh, channels, and that Donald Trump bought it. I mean, the point of having Pravda is it it's a place where the government can lie to the people. It is a very strange inversion of that relationship where the point of having these networks is it it's a place where the president lies to himself. I think that's an excellent way of putting it. And I think that that is precisely the problem here is that it is one thing to provide these messages. And I'm not saying that even most viewers believe everything that Fox News says. But what Fox News does is it provides them a handy set of talking points, um, interpretations that people can then use, whether they're Republicans in Congress or whether they're ordinary voters, to say, okay, this is how we're going to explain why the president did this. But because you have a president who is very television-oriented, who is very prone to believe, in many ways, his own press, um, because he believes that, it causes him to act in ways that actually dig the hole deeper for him and make it much more difficult to provide cover for him. And so it is this kind of strange feedback loop that's happening between Fox News and Donald Trump that is creating more and more problems for him. Now, at the same time, it's providing him cover. It's providing Republicans with talking points that are helping to keep um, the Republican Party behind Donald Trump and thus protecting him from impeachment. But it's it's definitely, I think, leading his presidency down a path that 
probably even the people at Fox News would not prefer it to go. There's a dynamic that seems to me to be emerging that I want to trace, but it's I'm not even sure I can quite explain what what I think it is here. So so let me give it a try. Donald Trump, as a figure both in Republican and conservative politics, but also as a media figure, uh, he is what we'd call differentiated in the market. He, he has always, from the moment he burst into politics, taken positions the other Republicans didn't want to take, said things the other Republicans didn't want to say, and then created this dynamic where you were either with him or against him and forced these constant loyalty tests on, you know, were, were you with the base that he represented or were you not? And as that has continued and now moving into this impeachment story where what he did with Ukraine is so bald-faced and so obvious and so undeniable, what it seems to me to have done is created a situation where it sharpens the difference between conservative media and news. And you see this in some of the crack up at Fox News. I mean, one of the arguments Fox News has always made about itself is that, well, look, we might have these opinion journalists in primetime in the evening and on Fox and Friends in the morning. But during the daytime, we do hard news. Look at Shep Smith. And it's not coincidental that it's during this period that Shep Smith began getting into fights with Tucker Carlson um, on air uh, across their different shows and then ultimately left the network and was followed out by a certain number of the hardcore news people at Fox. And so now we're in this position where Donald Trump in the way he's acted in what you need to contort yourself to say and do and ignore and believe to defend it. It's not possible to straddle the worlds anymore. And so Fox News and um, the conservative media that is beyond Fox News is either being forced to detether even more from the reality of the situation or is choosing to detether even more because that's a good market decision. But either way, the ability to split the difference uh, becomes weaker and weaker. And it seems to me that's going to make this ecosystem even more detached and problematic. Yeah, one way I like to think about this is that the first three years of the Trump administration were a series of loyalty tests, and impeachment is the final exam. This is the time when all of these loyalty tests actually matter because it brings conservative media around him, it brings Republicans around him, and it makes sure that that, that bulwark of conservative institutions stays firm, even through these these investigations that in which reality and what you're hearing on Fox News and what you're hearing out of the White House are very, very different. And what I mean by loyalty tests, you can actually see when it comes to Fox News. Fox News early on in the 2016 race was a little skeptical of Donald Trump precisely because of those things that you're talking about. Fox News saw itself as a, a conservative network and Donald Trump was not a particularly conservative politician. And when Donald Trump calls out Fox News in the spring of 2016, it begins to lose viewers. Conservatives side with Donald Trump instead of siding with Fox News. And so actually what you see over the course of 2016 into 2017 after Trump wins the election is that Fox News begins to change itself in order to reflect this new kind of you know, not really conservative politics, but nationalist right-wing politics of Donald Trump. And you see that in the change-up in the, in the evening lineup, right? They bring in Tucker Carlson. They bring in Laura Ingram, these very nativist nationalist presenters in the opinion hour, and they push out people who are more news-oriented or were more kind of establishment Republican, never Trumpers. And the, the recent fights between, um, Shep Smith and Sean Hannity go directly to this. 
it was clear even before Shep Smith left that he was low man on the totem pole when it came to the fight with um, Sean Hannity. He was the one who was told to stop fighting about it. Um, and really, Fox News has chosen to side with the Trump administration to reflect Donald Trump's politics. And that's not just because of who Donald Trump is. That's because they get blowback from their base, their viewers, whenever they deviate from Donald Trump's message. So it's it's really difficult to make sense of Fox News's choices if you just think about it in terms of Donald Trump. You have to think about it in terms of his relationship with the base as well. Okay, let's look at where we are right now. We've had public hearings that did not have quite as much of an impact as, you know, the Senate Watergate hearings did back in the day. And the House Judiciary Committee has voted on articles of impeachment, which is about the time when Nixon resigned. So my question is, is it still worth holding up those two timelines to each other as a comparison? There's always a danger in overstating the case of comparisons. But but I do think it's interesting to look at just where public opinion stands here as compared to then. We just had this poll this weekend uh, put up by Fox News, which showed that 54% of the country is in favor of impeachment. 50% favor impeachment and removal, and another 4% favor impeachment but not removal. I guess they see it as a kind of a, a censure motion. But that's remarkable, given that at the same time in the Nixon timeline, the numbers were lower. And in fact, the support for Nixon's removal even after the smoking gun tape comes out, even after he resigns, it's still only at 58%. So we're almost there. So for all the talk about how the country's more polarized, how Fox News is going to make this impossible to do, the public is actually more in favor of impeachment today than they were in favor of Nixon at the same point. That's absolutely crazy to consider. So what's missing from the equation then? What do you think is keeping Republican senators from pulling, you know, the same thing during Nixon and saying, look, you got to go. There is a trial. There's no way we can back you on this. I think the real difference is the, the difference in the makeup of the Republicans in Congress. If you look back in Watergate, there were a number of Republicans who, no matter how conservative they were, they had a clear sense that there were certain things that were beyond the pale. And they clearly came to the conclusion, some of them very reluctantly, they wrestled with this in public. Walter Flowers, a conservative Democrat, Larry Hogan, a conservative Republican, very famously wrestled with this in public almost, and finally came to the conclusion that they had no choice. That as much as they liked Nixon, as much as they loved his policies, as much as they backed him before, they had no choice. At the same time, Republicans back then were more concerned with themselves and their own institutions. They looked to defend Congress. They weren't willing to to say it's okay if the president blows off a congressional inquiry, it's okay if he blows off subpoenas. They were very protective of their institution. Uh, And now you've got a set of Republicans in Congress who seem to be all in on defending the president at all costs. As you were sitting on that panel and you were being questioned by Republican members of Congress, what did you hear in that questioning? Did did you hear an argument? What is the strongest version of the argument you heard, the one that you found, if you did find it in any way, convincing? And what are the argument or arguments you heard that were more worrying to you on a constitutional or just patriotic level? Well, here's the Republican argument that, although circular, is not ridiculous. And it's this. It says... 
you know what? Impeachment is a very divisive thing for the American public. And so Congress should only impeach the president if there's some bipartisan consensus that the president's done something really terrible because it's costly to the country. If we go to the Senate, you know, on a, on a basically a straight party vote and then the Senate acquits the president on basically a straight party vote, it discredits the phenomenon of impeachment and we can't save it for when we really need it. So that on its surface is actually, a, it's a good argument. I mean, it is true that impeachment is divisive and it is true that we want to save it for really bad situations. The problem is in this instance that it's really circular because the Republicans are themselves making this a partisan issue by closing their eyes to the wrongfulness of what President Trump in fact did and offering kind of fake arguments about, you know, how he really was interested in corruption, which I think, let's be honest, I think Republicans know that's not true. They know that they're just sort of it's a make weight argument. And so the result is that it's Republicans who are making this partisan. And if Republicans are going to make it partisan, then you're never going to be able to impeach anyone if you have to wait for something bipartisan. So I think that's both their best argument and also their most circular argument. The thing that worries me the most is an argument that very few Republicans want to say it openly, but I think they're falling back on it increasingly. And that is the argument that even if Donald Trump intended to get personal political advantage by demanding these investigations from Ukraine, that's fine and it's not impeachable because, say, it might not be a federal crime today, right? That, to me, is genuinely dangerous, because then they're defining deviancy down. You know, then they're basically defining an impeachable offense to exclude conduct that is profoundly dangerous to the union, to national security, and to the nature of democracy. And they're saying to Donald Trump, go ahead and do it in the future, and that's bad enough. But they're also saying it to every future president, go ahead and use the office of the presidency to gain personal political advantage in upcoming elections. And that's genuinely destructive. And that is the part that makes me actually somewhat afraid. What does it mean for American politics if the president is acquitted in a situation where the facts of the case are so clear? To my mind, it's actually very dangerous and bad for American politics if and when that happens. And, you know, I think most reasonable people think it is going to happen. So I should probably just say what when that happens. I think what's bad about it is that, again, it opens the possibility that future presidents will say, well, I can do this and get away with it. Now, it's better from my perspective, if the Republicans just pretend that the evidence is fake, and say this never happened, this never happened, this never happened, and acquit him, than it is if they say, okay, he did it, but we don't care, and we're acquitting him anyway. You know, it's that old expression that hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue. You know, the hypocrisy would be better here, because at least it would mean that Republicans were saying that it's wrong to use the office of the presidency to subvert elections against national security. If they don't say that, it's a particularly bad outcome. So I think the consequences are bad. So bad, in fact, Ezra, that I recognize the argument, the rational argument, that it was a mistake or would be a mistake still to impeach the president because if he's acquitted, it will make it look like this conduct is okay. The problem is that after the call was made public, if the Democrats in the House did not impeach the president, then they're the ones saying that it was all okay. And that definitely is, is bad. So I think in the end, the Democrats have no choice but to impeach because the conduct is so public, so overt, and so obviously a violation of high crimes and misdemeanors. So they kind of have to do it. And then we sort of have to hope that the judgment of history will be that they were right and that future presidents will not think that an acquittal means that they can do the same thing. 
The House of Representatives voted last night to impeach President Trump on charges that he abused his office and obstructed Congress, branding an indelible mark on the most turbulent presidency of modern times. After 11 hours of fierce debate on the House floor over Trump's conduct with Ukraine, lawmakers voted almost entirely along party lines to impeach him. Trump becomes the third president in U.S. history to face trial in the Senate. On Trump's 1,062nd day in office, Congress brought a momentous reckoning to an unorthodox president who has tested America's institutions with an array of unrestrained actions, including some that a collection of his own appointees and other government witnesses testified were reckless and endangered our national security. All Republicans voted against both articles. Only three Democrats broke ranks. A fourth presidential candidate, Tulsi Gabbard, voted present both times because she said Trump should be censured instead of impeached. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi framed the day's proceedings through the long lens of history, reciting the Pledge of Allegiance and singling out the line, The Republic, for which it stands. She wore black, and she hushed some of her members when they started to applaud after the vote to impeach. She wore a brooch that was a replica of the Mace of the Republic, the symbol for the power of the House. After last night's votes, Pelosi left open the possibility of delaying a procedural step that triggers the Senate trial, saying that she might not name the House impeachment managers and formally deliver the articles to the Senate unless Republicans, specifically Mitch McConnell, establish a fair process. She says what Republicans are talking about now, including calling no witnesses, is not fair. In doing this, Pelosi is effectively attempting to gain some leverage over the Senate's process for weighing the charges against the president. Wednesday's actions punctuated a quarter century of increasingly poisonous partisanship here in Washington, one that arguably began during Bill Clinton's presidency, was extended with rebellions against Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama, and is culminating in the Trump era. The intensity and polarization of the debate on the House floor vividly illustrated the extent to which leaders of the two parties now believe entirely different accounts of what occurred and are motivated by very different concerns. At times, they sounded almost as if they were representing different countries. Democrats characterized Trump as an immediate threat to the nation he was elected to lead, casting his actions as an unprecedented affront to American values. Republicans denounced those charges as unsubstantiated and called the process illegitimate, repeatedly accusing the Democrats of seeking to illegally overturn the results of the last election. Just before the House voted, Trump took the stage for a rally in Michigan, where he rallied 10,000 supporters at a sports arena in Battle Creek. It was a muscular display of his political potency, even at the historic low point of his presidency. It was the end of a day of hyperbole. Trump got the ball rolling by saying that he was being treated worse than the people who got burned at the stake and drowned during the Salem witch trials. Congressman Barry Loudermilk from Georgia, a Republican, declared that Trump was given less due process than Pontius Pilate granted Jesus Christ before his crucifixion. Fred Keller, a Republican from Pennsylvania, also invoked Jesus's crucifixion, specifically when Christ on the cross asked God to forgive those who had wronged him. He read on the floor from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verse 34, when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's a reflection of the cult of personality. And then, a few minutes later, Mike Kelly, the Republican from Pennsylvania, said Trump's impeachment was more akin to Pearl Harbor. 
noting that Franklin Roosevelt was standing in the same chamber when he called December 7, 1941, a day that would live in infamy. Kelly said December the 18th, 2019 is, quote, another date that will live in infamy. We've just heard clips today, starting with Ezra Klein on Impeachment Explained, discussing how the framers didn't see the likes of Mitch McConnell coming. Then Ezra spoke with Thomas Mann, co-author of It's Even Worse Than It Looks, to explain what's gone wrong with the Republican Party. On the media, discussed the tribalism that we all know and love, which used to just define our morality, which has now come to define our grasp of reality. Impeachment Explained then discussed the effect of Fox News and the conservative media in general. Impeachment Today compared polling from the Nixon era with today only to discover that the main difference is the Republican Party, not the people. The last clip we heard from Impeachment Explained got into the circular arguments Republicans are making and why they are dangerous for democracy. And finally, we just heard the Washington Post reporting the facts of the final impeachment debate and vote, which only serve to highlight the most extreme tendencies of the Republican Party. Members will hear more details on how the structures of our electoral system have worked to create a minority rule scenario in the country, which incentivizes the GOP to become more extremely conservative, plus more on the total lack of impact of public opinion on modern Republicans. So to hear that and all of our bonus content, which also includes more voicemails and commentary from me, I've been talking recently about some TV shows I've been watching, but making political connections or just social connections and, you know, my, my interpretations from, uh, from my life and, and how shows have been connecting with me. So that, that's, that's the, the sort of thing. When I say that I do extra commentary on the bonus show, it goes much uh, farther afield uh, in that context than than on the regular show. So if you want to check that out, plus getting ad-free versions of every regular episode, you can sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash best of the left. Now, speaking of membership and Patreon and all of that, here's where we stand in terms of our campaign. A couple of months ago, I launched a campaign trying to reach a thousand patrons donating on average $6 a month each. And to, to be totally honest, it would take a Christmas miracle to reach our goal. We're at nearly 700 patrons. The good news is people are being very generous and the average is above $6 each. So we got plenty of room if we had more people donating less, that would be totally fine. But uh, anyway, that that's about where we are. We haven't reached our goal. And unfortunately, I've got human psychology working against me. I, I know this from, you know, facts in my personal life, so don't take it personally. People love to help something succeed, but they're less interested in pitching into something that doesn't look like it's going to reach its goal. I have felt these instincts myself. I have pledged to someone's fundraiser and, you know, gotten in right at the end and was extra excited to help push something over the line. I get that that's how psychology works, but it is is really working against me right now. 
And what's important to understand is that this isn't a binary choice. This isn't Kickstarter. You know, it's not a succeed or fail, keep the show going or pack it all in. It's more like climate change, you know. Sure, we'd like to keep warming at two degrees, but if we can't, well, then we shouldn't give up because two and a half degrees of warming is way better than three. And three is way better than four and so on. So if you join now for as little as a couple of bucks a month, Maybe you'll be part of a Christmas miracle that helps us reach our funding goal, but even if that doesn't happen, every dollar pledged really does help us do this work, and we really are better off with your two bucks a month than we are without it. You know, every little bit counts. And besides, I mean, you don't want to be a prisoner to the foibles of human psychology anyway, right? Like, don't let the fact that we aren't likely to hit our goal stop you from donating because uh, they're not going to make it, so forget it, I, I won't help. That's silly. That's not how this should work. Okay, now a quick note on the holiday schedule. Uh, returning with new episodes, uh, we won't be back until on or about January 7th. So that's two weeks off that I'm taking, thanks to the uh, generous, not just financial, but emotional support of members who voted this year to give me a bunch of vacation time that I wasn't taking for myself, and they you know, started insisting that I take more time off. So I'm very grateful to them for that. Uh, that said, I'm not really taking a full two weeks off. It's going to be sort of like those teacher work days you remember from school. You'd get the day off off, but the teachers are there and they're prepping their lesson plans and probably gossiping to each other about, you know, which parents are the most annoying or, you know, whatever teachers do. I have no inside information on that. So as a tradition, my first episode of the new year will be one of my patented 10-year retrospective episodes, and this time we'll be featuring highlights from 2010, quite an impactful year, as you may recall. And so it's going to be a pretty heavy lift for a single episode. I've, I've actually had an army of, well, a small army of volunteers helping narrow down the content for this episode for months. I got started on this project months ago, and with the help of volunteers, we've narrowed it down to only about 20 hours worth of clips for me to still go through with a fine-tooth comb to turn into a one-hour episode summarizing everything that happened in 2010. So I'm going to be using the first week of January as part of, you know, sort of my, my teacher work days to, uh, to get that episode prepped. And now finally, I will leave you uh, at the end of this year, at the end of a series about impeachment with uh, a handful of limericks. I have more than one for you today because my go-to poets have been either writing new great limericks, and, and one of them has been retweeting some of their classics over the past few few months about impeachment. So uh, in response to Trump only being the third president to, to be impeached, at limerick underscore news writes, though Trump may be very concerned or feeling rejected and spurned, he shouldn't be peeved, for he's finally achieved a status he's actually earned. At Liberix writes, It's come to be well understood that Trump's done what no one else could. This man without peers in under three years has made Richard Nixon look good. And then in response to Trump's claims that basically the whole thing's a scam, at Liberix writes, 
The Prez, with a scornful fuck you, insist that impeachment's a coup. The framers would never endorse this endeavor. Except, like, Article 2. And finally, in response to Trump's rambling, unhinged six-page letter to Pelosi, at Liberix writes, The president, visibly shook, demands to be let off the hook, so angrily wrote a multi-page note, to paraphrase, I'm not a crook. So that will wrap up this year. We've all got to get rest in preparation for 2020, which will undoubtedly be the biggest year in American and British politics in decades. So rest up. Keep the comments coming in if you feel like it, even over the holidays. The voicemail line is 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today and for this year. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives now more than ever. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com